Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. Today's episode is a cross post with the BioVerge podcast. BioVerge's host, Neil Lippman, chatted with A16Z Bio and Health general partner, Vanita Agarwala, about her dual role as a clinician and investor, the adoption curve of digital therapeutics, how Vanita thinks about platforms and a modular, engineering-driven approach to biotech, and much more. Let's get started. Yeah, we've got Vanita Agarwala on the show today. For people not familiar with her, who is she? I am incredibly excited to welcome Vanita to the show today. She is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, where she leads investments for the firm's bio and health fund across therapeutics, life sciences, tools, diagnostics, digital health, with a focus on companies leveraging unique data sets to improve drug development and patient care delivery. Prior to joining A16Z, Vanita held many different roles in the healthcare space as a physician, taking care of patients, as an operator at health tech startups, including Flatiron Health, and as a venture investor on the Google Ventures life sciences team. Vanita holds a BS in biophysics from Stanford University, then MD, PhD degrees from Harvard Medical School and MIT. So I am incredibly excited to talk to Vanita, particularly because she continues to see patients at Stanford as an adjunct clinical professor. And I really am curious to get her perspective as a clinician and also a venture investor and how she views the types of technologies that they're investing in at A16Z through that specific lens. Oh, there, there are certainly plenty of doctors turned venture capitalists, but it's unusual to see someone still practicing. How do you think that might inform her investment decisions? Well, I'm going to talk to Vanita about that, but I would gather that it gives her a unique insight into the patient perspective and, and the patient journey. And so I think oftentimes a lot of investors and entrepreneurs in our industry get so caught up in the technology, you tend to forget there's a patient at the end of the journey. So I have to imagine Vanita continuing to see patients reminds her consistently that there is a patient at the end of the journey, which I'm sure must inform the types of technologies and therapies that they're investing in at A16 and the way that she views how technologies can integrate in care delivery and how they can actually impact the patient at the end of the day. One of the recurring themes on this show is the interplay between 
information technology and biotechnology. And Drewson Horowitz has deep grounding in both these areas and investing in, in this interplay. How does that type of expansive team help inform their investment decisions? Yeah, I think you know when when they launched the Bio and Health Fund a number of years ago, the first fund, you know, it was it was pretty novel within the industry, and you know they have a nice cross section of folks with various expertise, as you said, you know, the the, the firm started with you know technology specific investment with a technology specific investment thesis, and now they've brought into Bio and Health, and so I think it's really interesting because we have seen this increasing convergence of the two fields coming together, so. You know, I think it's it's definitely a really interesting intersection these days, and there's a ton of innovation between these two sectors of, of biology and technology and software and thinking about biology as an engineering discipline. And so there's there's just really fertile ground for investments in this space. And obviously, what they've done at the Bio and Health Fund, uh, you know, they, they've been sort of leaders in this in this intersection for for some time now. So I'm excited to get Vanita's perspective on. Some of the companies they've invested in, their investment thesis in general, and then also what she's most excited about for the future and the types of technology themes and trends that they're really excited about. Well, if you're all set. Let's do it, Danny. Benita, I am incredibly excited to welcome you to the show today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about your work as general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, also known as A16Z, in the firm's bio and health fund. I'm excited to dive into your investment thesis and talk about the various technologies and themes you're most excited about, as well as the importance of improving care delivery. But I'd first like to start with your own journey from practicing medicine to the world of venture capital. Vanita, you continue to see patients at Stanford as an adjunct clinical professor in the Division of Primary Care and Population Health. What led you from spending all of your time in clinical practicing patients to the world of venture capital? Yeah, great question. And um, it's a real privilege to continue to have a small, um, a small clinical practice at Stanford now. Um, but really, I grew up in industry sort of concomitant to um, to growing up as a clinician. And so I think um, I just sort of encountered uh, a series of opportunities and, a, and always had a very sustained interest in translating work out of academia into industry that um, for me, it was a very kind of, it was a mutually winding path um, in both the clinical world and in, um, in the startup and venture world. So I, um, you know, even when I was in college and <clears throat> worked in a national lab and worked in other academic labs, I was always sort of curious and asking, you know, how does this get to patients and ended up working in banking and working at McKinsey and the consulting practice for, you know, for healthcare, biotech and pharma companies um, for some time. And then ultimately, you know, went to a couple of different startups, including Flatiron Health before ending up in, in, um, in venture, which um, for me happens to just be a completely remarkable way to combine so many of my interests and um, and enthusiasm for new technology um, all in one role. But um, but really, kind of my clinical um, my clinical path was a, was a winding one that intersected um, with that industry path. Vanita, we probably share some similar scars from uh, <laughs> our banking days. We can save that for another discussion, but. One of the things that I personally get frustrated with is that it often feels like a lot of investors and, and entrepreneurs, for that matter, 
get so caught up in the technology, whether it's synthetic biology or artificial intelligence or machine learning, that they often forget there is a patient at the end of the journey. How does your experience as a practicing physician impact your investment perspective and the types of tools and technologies you're most interested in? Yeah, great question. Maybe I'll I'll try to actually answer your prior question, too, as to why a clinician is is um, is wearing a venture hat in the first place. So I so I I think you you nailed it on the head, which is that at the end of the day, um, great technologies will have great impact and also create great value when they serve patients um, and offer something that just wasn't possible before. And you have to know what's possible and what's not possible in order to characterize and bucket technologies into those um, into those two basic. Uh, categories, right? There are lots of technologies that we actually already have or that patients don't actually need or that there are really um, kind of alternative ways to solve. And so I agree with you, technologies that are kind of looking for a problem are typically not the ones we get most excited about. At Stanford, for example, um, I I have a very unique sort of clinical lens, which is that I focus on the growing cohort of oncology survivors, that is cancer patients who actually um, uh, have now made it through some of the most intense and acute phases of their treatment journeys and are now have a unique set of needs related to long-term side effects or related to, um, you know, prior surgery and radiation and um, and uh, have a unique set of surveillance and ongoing screening needs and so on. And so, and survivorship care actually does start sort of the day you receive a cancer diagnosis. But in general, my patient population is this very unique set of patients who, who have, you know, who, who require kind of a unique care model after the completion of their original cancer treatment. And um, I often think about that because in a sense, our entire industry is focused on getting patients to survivorship, right? The whole purpose of a new therapy or a new diagnostic or um, even a lot of the digital health tools that I, um, that I get most excited about, I view as, you know, helping us have more patients 10 years from now who can call themselves survivors of any given disease state, whether that's cancer or you know, heart disease or diabetes or or autoimmune disease or or whatever it may be. And so um, for me, my clinical lens is is at this unique intersection where even our best therapies still leave something to be desired. Even patients who become survivors still have ongoing needs. And a lot of patients don't make it there. And so I am constantly asking the question, what is it that patients deserve but don't have? What is it that patients, um, where we, what, what are the scenarios where we have a technology, but patients can't access it because of a variety of constraints in our system? And what are the things that I wish I could offer that just haven't been invented yet? And when a founder pitches something that scratches those, you know, those needs, I get very, very excited. So, Vanita, let's, let's dive in, into that a little more. So... One of the things you talk a lot about is care delivery and ongoing care. You had a recent quote, which sums up, shall I say, the unfortunate state of affairs perfectly. And I'm going to quote, as a physician in 2022, I often lament that I have more real-time insight into the status of my sandwich delivery than I do into the daily health of my patients. 
Wow. So on, <laughs> on the one hand, the advances we're seeing in novel therapeutic modalities, computational biology, synthetic biology are, are truly incredible. On the other hand, the patient experience navigating our healthcare system, real-time feedback seems anything but advanced. Vanita, how, how do you think about this discrepancy and what can we do to fix it? Yeah, I am incredibly optimistic that some of the technologies that have become, that have completely changed consumer lived experiences in every aspect of our lives, right? Ranging from food delivery all the way to how we, um, how we shop, how we um, process bills. Every part of consumer life has changed in a way that hasn't yet trickled to patient life. And so um, we are incredibly optimistic at Andreessen Horowitz that software and technology can really transform a large part of that, not only patient journey, but importantly, also provider journey. And my own bias in this space, and I acknowledge it's a bias, is that the provider just plays such a key role um, in healthcare in a way that's different from other elements of consumer life. You know, patients really do care and want and um, desire better access to the expertise and resources of a provider. So much of even our therapeutic and diagnostic arsenal is just simply gated by what a provider, you know, by a decision that a provider has to make. And so I am particularly focused on the provider because I think that actually translates to better patient experiences if we can make providers function as, as, you know, as superhumans and, um, and do a lot more than they would be able to do in a technology-free or less technology-enabled world. So I, my, my most core thesis in the healthcare investing world is to look for technologies, tools, infrastructure that enables providers to do more, that enables providers who are already out there in the community to do more on behalf of the patients who need them most. And I can give you you know, a couple examples of that. The, the, I think the, the real-time kind of example you mentioned um, related to how we are constantly being texted as providers, uh, sorry, as, as consumers, you know, kind of in every aspect of our life from all, you know, from, from every service provider in our lives is in stark contrast to our ability to have that type of rapid engagement with the healthcare system as patients. And so, you know, in that context, we invested in a company called Memora Health that sets up automated, smart, AI-enabled infrastructure to allow a provider to put a patient on a care journey in which they can be in touch all the time. Hey, did you fill that medication I prescribed? Are you having any side effects in the morning, in the evening? Maybe, maybe certain care journeys require checking in multiple times. Hey, you had a baby and now you're going home. Wouldn't it be great if your provider actually checked in on you and knew when to escalate certain complaints and certain um, symptoms and so on? But that's that's something that, in principle, a provider could do if they had um, you know infinite time. Every doctor wishes they could do that, but they just can't in our current ecosystem. And so that's a great example, I think, of a technology that enables um, doctors, nurses, care teams to do a better job. Um, and gives them superpowers. And I love that example because it really hits the nail on the head in terms of our ability today to capture and analyze real world real world data sets. 
in sort of a changing healthcare environment that's having a direct impact on patients. And that, that's all happening today. So if we dig into that just a little more and focus around the area of digital therapeutics, where software itself may be the best way to treat a condition, where do you think the opportunities lay in that realm? And, and where are we on the adoption curve within the sphere of digital therapeutics? Yeah, perhaps a controversial view. I think there will be a role for digital therapeutics, but I don't see pure software as the, you know, as replacing the bedrock of modern medicine's therapeutic arsenal, really at all. I don't think software alone is going to cut it for a cancer patient. I don't think software alone is going to cut it for a heart disease or a kidney disease patient. You know, all the places where we spend a lot of money in our healthcare system, um, in other words, all the patients who have, um, you know, significant illness in our healthcare system are not going to be therapeutically treated by software alone. Now, I think where the digital um, therapeutic field can play a huge role is in behavior change. So in, in the subset of, of diseases where we know that patients um, do need to undergo um, you know, lifestyle change or um, need to couple a uh, pharmaceutical product with some other type of, um, of, uh, of lifestyle change or behavior change, you know, there have been really, really great strides there. And I think continuous engagement, smart engagement, kind of cutting edge consumer tech can absolutely play a huge role there. Um, and and there, there's a lot of subtlety there. I think the first wave were, this, were these kind of very creative companies, you know, one in our portfolio is, is Omada, um, you know, that sort of wrote, you know, started this trend in some ways based on on data coming out of the diabetes community that said, hey, really good lifestyle change can actually um, rival our best therapies in terms of their utility in that disease. Now, I don't think that applies to kind of all diseases, but we know that for heart disease, for metabolic disease, for hypertension, lifestyle change is a big part of the equation. And so, you know, smart tools like that can play a huge role. And I think now we're getting into the next wave of really subtle distinctions. You know, I was just talking actually yesterday to a, to a great um, entrepreneur in the cancer survivorship space. And, um, and she gave me this interesting insight that, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and other types of approaches designed to help patients um, with more traditional forms of anxiety actually don't work as naturally in the context of a cancer survivor's anxiety, because some of that anxiety is fundamentally much more rational than another patient's might be. There's a certain rationality in the genuine anxiety about cancer recurrence, because it's real. That is a real physical possibility. And so you have to treat it in actually very different ways. And so there's a whole emerging field now of psycho-oncology and maybe some of the digital tools that help with this very unique patient context where a patient's anxious because, because they have reason to be, and yet we still need to help them manage that anxiety in a rational way. You know, maybe problems like that can now um, merit new technologies, but I think you can hear in that example, it's become where we've reached this next level of nuance, right? This next level of, of, um, 
of precision and uh, patient stratification that you know that I think is extremely exciting for the field that we've that we've earned that privilege. Vanita, you you mentioned the entrepreneur that you were recently chatting with. I, w- I want to take a step back and ask if you have any advice for founders and entrepreneurs, specifically within this realm, because you know we, we've seen this idea of these types of digital therapeutics or digital health products in general be piloted to death almost, or pilotitis, mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. How, how, how can an entrepreneur avoid getting stuck in that, that rabbit hole? Yeah, it's a great question. It's been a sort of a trope in the digital health and healthcare sector that um, maybe our incumbents, um, that is large health systems, you know, otherwise known as provider systems or payers, insurance companies, um, can often keep startups uh, stuck in in that pilotitis phase where, you know, you're kind of doing hyper custom work with one customer and it lasts three months and you have to, you know, turn your whole team towards servicing that one customer. And then three months later, their priorities might change. And so that's sort of the, the that those are the underlying sentiments and risks um, that people often refer to when they talk about pilotitis. And so, but you can start to hear some of the solutions in the same in the articulation of the problem, right, which is that it is really important to build generalizable infrastructure that's not extremely custom to a single health system's needs so I, or a single um, health insurance company's needs. So um, I think it's really, really important to understand what is the fundamental challenge that extends across an entire sector, across an entire patient population, and um, kind of power through to some extent every incumbent's belief that their own ecosystem is so unique that it merits a completely unique technology solution. That's just simply not always true. Or even if it is true, the right technology infrastructure can actually be customized really, really easily rather than in an extremely bespoke fashion. So, you know, at Andreessen Horowitz in general, we love very, very nimble software teams. We love teams that can spin up products, um, demos, pilots even, right? But do it without rotating their entire team towards the pilot. Do it in a very nimble way. Do it in a way that can be updated tomorrow and then do it in a way that can be customized from one customer to the next, um, you know, next month. And so that's the kind of, um, that's that's what we think real software um, enables is it gives you that um, that right to be to be nimble. Vanita, I, I want to continue down the sort of healthcare continuum. A16Z has a vision of drug development becoming more and more like software development, moving from a bespoke to an iterative process where platforms can take a modular approach to building medicine. What are some of the challenges you see in reducing biology to an engineering problem? Biology is hard. Um, and I think that's why, you know, sometimes I think about this in the, in the, in the frame of, of just like we need combination therapies for certain diseases, for HIV, for cancer, we're going to need multiple technologies and methods um, to solve really complicated biology and complicated, you know, human disease um, challenges. And so, you know, I, we don't think there's a one, you know, one software fits all or serves all or solves all sort of paradigm. But what we mean when we say that we think parts of biology and biotech can become more programmable, what we mean by that 
is a little bit similar to what I described on the healthcare side in terms of a nimbleness that is enabled by software. And so that doesn't mean you don't have to conduct you know, potentially very large experimental screens across a wide space of chemistry or a wide space of protein sequences to find a great small molecule drug or a great, you know, biologic or a great nucleic acid therapy. But ideally, when you, when you um, survey that whole space, every time you survey that whole space, you learn something about the properties of that underlying space, the topology of the terrain that you just had an opportunity to traverse, right? And the traditional um, regime in biotech was often to run very large screens, take the top hits, optimize them further, nominate your development candidate, you know, conduct a a, a rigorous set of of IND-enabling studies to further advance that into a drug product. And that, that can work. It obviously has worked, and our sector has been more productive than ever in terms of the pace of new drug approvals over the last decade. But what we're looking for are opportunities to increase that efficiency even more by saying, what if at that very beginning step, you learn something about the underlying topology of the space such that you could predict, hey, if I take a step to the right in the following way, here's where I'm likely to end up because I have a map. So now now I can kind of actually, I can go places with some intention. And if I decide I need to hyper-densely sample a certain part of that map, I can do that because I recognize that the topology is particularly up and down and I need more data points. Or in another place, I, you know, I can be more sparse. And all that kind of thinking we think is enabled by software will ultimately make the design of a large number of therapeutics and a large number of modalities much more programmable. And that is really what we mean by the analogy to software. It's not so much that software um, really replaces the core drug development or discovery process, but it really, really augments it and makes it much more intelligent. Benita, that, that's a great segue into talking about the role of artificial intelligence in healthcare. So one of the key investment themes at the Bio and, and Health Fund is this idea of the emergence of artificial intelligence and the ability to apply this to really all aspects of healthcare. So I want to break it down into two buckets. One is the development of therapies, and the second is delivering care. So let's, mm-hmm. let's stay on the topic of developing novel therapies. What's your v- viewpoint around how AI can deliver on the promise of, let's say, reducing the cost and timelines of the drug development process? How, how, how do you see AI integrating into that and, and this whole thing playing out? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I like to preface with a quote from, um, from one of our portfolio company founders. So Incitro is a, is a, um, is a portfolio company uh, in the small molecule drug discovery space that we're incredibly excited about, um, founded by Daphne Kohler, a leading um, AI scientist and um, veteran entrepreneur. Um, And she always says, you know, let's think about AI like we thought about computers 20 years ago, right? The best companies 20 years ago or 30 years ago um, were not sort of saying, hey, we've got really smart people. We've we've got experts. Like we're, we're just, we're really smart. We don't need computers. That's not what they were saying, right? They were saying, how can our experts learn to use the computers and be even better? And that's kind of the same um, 
stance that I think we have on AI today in 2023, which is to say, wouldn't it be crazy to say, no, that's okay. We don't need AI. We're, we're smart enough. We've got really good experts. You know, of course, there could be a role for AI, and we'd rather all day long back the founders and the teams who say, yes, I have experts um, in every part of this of the drug development and biotech kind of value chain. But oh boy, would I love for them to be enabled and armed with this technology. And so um, I often think about the role of AI as living on the spectrum of, of human expertise. So if on one side of the spectrum you have tasks that don't require a lot of human expertise, so let's call them low-skill tasks that do need to get done ultimately in order to you know, achieve your end goal of developing a drug, let's say. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have, ex- you know, you have things that um, even a human could never do. You have a certain set of tasks that no expert is capable of doing. So sort of, you know, things you might dream about, but that a human could never do. And in the middle, you have the tasks that really require h- human expertise and the training that humans have gone through that could be chemistry, biology, you know, um, pharmacology, whatnot, in, in the sort of center bucket. Some of the places where I think um, AI can play a role, I think AI can play a role in all three of those buckets. I think it's particularly compelling to leverage AI in that first bucket, right? Let's make sure we're not um, inappropriately deploying expert talent in tasks that actually don't require expertise. So maybe that's you know a whole slew of data analysis. Maybe that's a whole set of activities you know related to um, uh, regular, you know, related to kind of um, uh, automation in the lab. Maybe we don't need really super skilled biologists transferring liquids from one tube to another. So we're very excited about kind of smarter, more automated lab technologies. We're very excited about, you know, better ways to document, record, leverage, query all the knowledge that exists inside a company. So, you know, we're investors in in Benchling and a, and a whole suite of, of um of companies that are providing really great software services um, to avoid uh, humans from doing what are otherwise low-skilled tasks. Um, We have another company that we invested in called Biodoc, for example, that helps automate the analysis of microscopy images. It turns out you have a very large number of scientists counting various features of randomly sampled subsets of a microscopy of an image, right, of, of cells under a microscope, for example, and annotating them manually. And that's a great task for a computer to take off their plate because it's, it's ultimately actually a, a lower skill task and something that a computer might even do better than, than the expert. But then understanding what the results of that experiment mean in the second bucket, right, the, the tasks that require the skilled expert, you might let the skilled expert continue doing. But then again, on the other side of the spectrum, I get incredibly excited where there are things that just no no expert, no matter how great they are, are ever going to be capable of doing on their own. That could be creating the underlying ML model to predict structure activity relationships for a large space of potential um, drug candidates. That could be finding a novel ML-based signature on a pathology slide that predicts whether or not a patient is going to respond to a certain therapy. We just know that that's not something an expert 
can do on their own because you need to look at and integrate an extraordinary amount of data to do that. So we've, we, we invested in a company called Valar Labs doing exactly that for cancer patients and saying, hey, what are the, what are the hidden features in a pathology slide that could help us select which patients might actually respond to certain therapies, right? Um, so there's, just to give you a flavor, I, I really think AI can help across the spectrum, um, but in different ways, depending on the nature of the task at hand. And what about applying AI in the realm of care delivery? Mm-hmm. How do you see that playing out? So I think, I think a similar framework applies there's a host of AI tools that we're very excited about that should just automate low-skill tasks, which are abundant in care delivery, right? That could be documentation, that could be collecting the right billing codes on behalf of a patient, that could be processing a prior auth claim, that could be generating the evidence in support of a certain treatment decision that a payer needs to understand why a certain therapeutic choice is a good one. That could mean you know, even as I mentioned, simply communicating with patients on a day-to-day basis, hour-to-hour basis, um, need not require the most skilled, all such messages and all such communications need not require the full expertise of our healthcare system, maybe only a subset do, right? Um, when, once a patient is reporting something that requires further triage. And so there's a whole, there's a lot of kind of administrative um, tasks that we are very excited about automating, ranging from, you know, the patient experience, the provider experience, the financial experience, the whole, um, the whole underpinnings of, of, our, of our healthcare system. And then on the other side, again, there are a whole bunch of things that um, we just don't think humans can ever do really well. And there I'll give you another example, um, you know, of where we think, an, you know, an AI or some type of um, advanced computational tooling can start to achieve what no human can. An example is actually population health and panel health management. Um, Physicians are fundamentally wired to see one patient at a time. Um, You know, you walk into a clinic and you march through your clinic schedule. You might see a patient at nine, a patient at 10, a patient at 11, a patient at 20. You keep, you march through your schedule. If a patient cancels, you might actually breathe a sigh of relief, right? That you actually, well, you know, I, I, I have a little bit of extra time, you know, to finish charting and do other kind of administrative follow-ups for some of my prior patients and, and so on and so forth. What's really difficult for an individual physician to execute on is to have a view of the health of an entire panel of patients that they're that they're managing, and that's obviously a key component of of um, value based reimbursement frameworks and kind of a value based trend that payers are getting more excited about including um, physicians in. And so we backed a company called Pearl Health, kind of in that vein, on the bet that technology might be able to help a primary care doctor actually look at the health of their whole panel. And so maybe that patient who canceled, maybe an algorithm could tell you, hey, this is actually a patient who, you know, you need to call. They have the following characteristics that predict an otherwise, you know, significant risk of future complications or, you know, hospitalization or um, all kinds of things that maybe there are preventive um, 
strategies that could, you know, that could avoid such an outcome. And so, but again, the provider needs some input, right? Otherwise there's just across 2000 patients, it's very difficult for any, any human, no matter how much expertise they have in, in clinical medicine to do that. So again, on both sides of the spectrum, extremely high skill, such high skill that I don't think any individual could, could kind of do on their own. And um, a large slew of low skill tasks, um, you know, we think technology and, and artificial intelligence in particular could be transformative. Yeah, Benita, there, I mean, there's so many great topics in there that you dug into. One of the things that I get really excited about in terms of the care delivery model is utilizing AI in, in such a way, as, as you said, to do some of the more menial tasks that could free up the clinician to do what humans do best. And that's you know, create empathy and have that relationship with the patient instead of spending so much time doing the more menial tasks. So that, that's something I'm particularly excited about for, for the future. Let, let's talk a little bit now about where we are in the, at the macro level, right? I mean, there's a lot of economic headwinds and difficulties that we're facing, yet the pace of innovation seems to continue to accelerate. What excites you the most today in terms of the ability for technology to transform medicine and healthcare Let's take this in two buckets over the relatively near term, let's say the next three to five years, and then we can look out even further. But let, let's start in the relatively near term. I think you're absolutely right. There are macro tailwinds, but I will say, I mean, it would blow your mind to see the level of innovation that we are seeing startup founders develop day to day. We're actually seeing, we're taking more meetings with startup founders than I think in some sense we ever have in the history of our fund. And so I think. Um, you're absolutely right. There is this kind of divergence um, wherein the uh, technology tailwinds are very, very strong, um, but they encounter a unique set of, of economic headwinds. Um, uh, but to us, you know, that does not change the fundamental value that these technologies are going to create on behalf of patients. And so I would say our overall stance is actually, you know, largely um, at, a, at the highest level unchanged. You know, we are still extremely excited about backing um, promising big swings. Um, and we think that there are going to be creative ways for investors, for management teams, for other players in the ecosystem to kind of lock arms and probably fund to... Um, fruition, a smaller total number of companies uh, than seemed like might be the case over the last two years. And so that's actually, um, you know, a good thing, we think. Um, in a sense, you know, the markets are in a challenging position, but, you know, it's important to remember that the private capital raised to deploy into biotech and healthcare was actually raised before the market downturn. And it's parked right now, poised to invest, including our own fund in the most you know, in the best and most innovative technology companies. But the difference might be that, you know, not 20, but five um, or, you know, or, or some other ratio shift of companies get to receive those investment dollars. And we, we view this as a healthy, a healthy consolidation um, welcome in some ways for our industry. And, and Vanita, if we think about the, the super long term, maybe I'll ask you to take out your crystal ball or put on your Star Trek suit. And, and think about innovation over the next, uh, say, 50 to 100 years. What, what type of future do you envision? What, what gets you the most excited today? 
Um, I mean, let's see. I've got my suit strapped on, but um, it's there's uh, the world looks very different, right? That's why we're um, that's why we're venture investors. We're betting that the world looks kind of unrecognizable in 50 years. I think both in the bio world, um, frankly, and in the synthetic biology world, and in the care delivery world. Um, we hope it would be hard to recognize the way we do things today, just as it would have been 50 years ago as well. Um, you know, I think maybe the the common thread is that we think um, technology is going to fundamentally lower the probability of success and the total capital required to achieve better health outcomes. That could be through a drug, that could be through a care delivery paradigm, that could be through behavior change, as you referenced, um, through software um, interventions and, um, and tools. But, but either way, I think one of the things that's really challenging in our field, both in the biotech space and in the healthcare space, is actually sort of the dollar of investment required to get to an improvement in patient clinical outcomes is high. Um, we are a capital intensive industry. We're arguably working on the problems that matter most to all of us. We have, we're working um, in an industry that already spends a lot. And so, you know, that represents a huge fraction of our GDP. And so for all these reasons, this space has continued and will continue to attract enormous capital. But fundamentally, 50 years from now, I hope we get a lot more per each dollar that we've invested, um, you know, in, in just in, in clinical needle moving outcomes. Benita, we, we've talked a lot today about technology, but when you make an investment, you're not only backing a technology, but the people. Mm -hmm. What do you look for in founders and their teams when you decide whether to invest in a company or not? Um, you know, I think it's, it's, um, it's a couple of, traits that um, that are particularly attractive. Um, the first is trust. Uh, you know, it might sound kind of sort of basic or, or not particularly technically tethered, but trust really matters. Um, we enter kind of decade-long journeys with founders um, in our business. And so I have to feel that I can trust what someone is telling me, that they're being transparent, that um, that uh, that they're telling me sort of the complete story, that they're um, open-minded to feedback. And when they say they are open-minded, they actually are. And all these things are, are fundamentally about trust. In the care delivery space, we have to trust that people are going to put patients' interests, um, you know, really first and, and um, at, at the forefront of their business decisions. And so all of, you know, that's probably... Um, one of the most important. And then the second um, is, I would characterize as um, iteration speed and iteration velocity being high is really important to us. And that's, again, maybe a little bit counterintuitive because you'd think I would say that the most important is that we like their ideas. <laughs> and that's important. Um, it's rare that we invest in a founder who's, you know, who, you know, with whom we just don't, see eye to eye on anything. But again, startups over this decade long journey will have to 
stop doing something they thought they were going to do or start doing something they didn't think they would do. And so the versatility, the iteration speed, the ability to say, hey, you know, that project is not working, but guess what? We got to the answer in, in, in three months and really chased it to the ground and did so in a capital efficient way is so rare and hard to find. And so when we start seeing signs of that, we get incredibly excited. And sometimes this happens for us, even in the investment process, we'll say, hey, you know, this isn't an investment for us at this time, you know, because we're not yet convinced about X. And if a founder comes back, you know, months later and says, hey, I got this deal, or hey, I actually ran this experiment, or hey, my, my AI actually helped me design something in record speed that actually does have that property you wanted, um, or that you had said would, you know, would, would help satisfy um, the investment thesis you had, you know, those are all meaningful iteration speed signals, not necessarily that that property or that drug or that care model is the one that the company needs to pursue. But I think um, it's very telling when they can when they can move quickly and iterate rapidly. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And Benita, we could probably talk for the next three days about these topics. I, I find them endlessly fascinating, but I want to be <laughs> cognizant of your time and, and wrap up with one additional question. And that's any advice that you have for all the founders out there who are listening to, to the show? Huh, general advice. Let's see. Um, I think, um, I, I think actually my advice is uh, sort of, I know I just said that I, I value founders who are receptive to, to feedback and that I can trust, but um, the very best founders I would say are not particularly uh, uh molded by the investors they work with. And it's a core part of our investment thesis, um, given that most of our investments are not companies or founders that we kind of incubate within our four walls, but rather founders who really kind of take form in the wild, so to speak. Um, and that's a very core thesis at Andreessen Horowitz. It has been for the, you know, for the 15 years of, of our firm's history is that we love backing founders who have gotten obsessed with an idea on their own. It's not an idea we gave them. We know that. We're humble about that. That's why it's a better idea than something we would ever have. Um, and that's, that's why we have such enormous respect for the startup founders' kind of intellect traversal of, of, the, of the maze of ideas that they could have possibly pursued and then landing on the first idea that they'd like to pursue. And so, my advice is actually typically to stick to your guns because you're way smarter than um, than any investor you talk to. You're smarter than most of the customers you're talking to um, it, with respect to your own capabilities. And so uh, listen when appropriate. Listen here as much as you possibly can from everybody, from your customer stakeholders, from patients, from your investors, from prospective investors. Um, but ultimately, you have to do what you have most conviction in. I think that's great advice, Benita, and a great way to, to wrap the show. Just one, one final question. How can people get in touch or learn more about all the exciting opportunities that you're working on? Um, we are available on all of the, um, all of the requisite social media channels. Um, so please feel free to reach out to any member of the A16Z BioHealth team on um, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, email. Uh, we love hearing um, through other folks we're already connected to. Um, lots of different ways to get in touch, and we look forward to hearing from you. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time today and a really great conversation, Benita. Thanks so much.
Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. <laughs>